Well, it's wonderful to see you this morning. Thank you so much for joining with us as we gather to, to worship and hear from God's word and pray together and enjoy uh, fellowship around uh, around his word and around his table in, in a few moments. But um, as, as Jonathan has already said, welcome and, and happy Mother's Day to, uh, to all those special and wonderful mums in our lives. Uh, and for those that are able to, we, we do pray that today is a joyous day of honouring uh, those who you hold dear. Uh, for me, that's just meant the day of babysitting for my mum, so thanks. Um, but it is, it is wonderful to have you with us. And, and as Jonathan has also said, uh, it is right for us to recognise that, that today is marked by sadness and, and an acute sense of loss for many. Uh, and so we do pray God's help and comfort as you remember incredibly significant people uh, and that significant person who you were privileged to call mum. Um, but thank you again for, for joining with us as we uh, continue on in our studies through Nehemiah. We reach chapter 6 today. Uh, and after today, we're going to take a couple of weeks break from Nehemiah. Uh, we turn our minds towards Easter. And so next week, uh, God willing, Jack will bring God's word to us. And the week after that, Leslie will be leading our thoughts on Palm Sunday. And then I'll be back for uh, Easter Sunday morning, uh, Lord willing. And, and today marks actually quite a natural break in the narrative of Nehemiah's story and of these 12 chapters that we're spending some time in. Uh, And we see that break because if you happen to have your Bible with you, please do look at Nehemiah chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, please do lift one if you see one around you. Uh, One of those red hardback ones, feel free to to use that today or even take that with you if that's helpful for you. But when we get to Nehemiah 6, and particularly verse 15, this is why Nehemiah 6 marks a natural break in the narrative. Because in verse 15, we see these wonderful words. So the wall, and it's so understated, actually, but here we are in verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in in 52 days. So the wall is completed. Now, for those of you who have journeyed with us already through five and a half chapters of Nehemiah, that's a significant moment. All of those chapters have been about building the walls around the city of Jerusalem about 450 years before Christ came as the Jewish people were allowed to return having been taken to exile by the Persians. They're now being allowed to return and part of what Nehemiah is about is about rebuilding this wall and halfway through the book the wall is completed and we'll think about that in a lot more detail through today. In 52 days the wall is completed and this should be a moment of celebration indeed in the chapters that we'll see after Easter. There are a number of ceremonies that take place to mark this significant moment in the history of the Jewish people. Um, But as we think of this wall being completed today in Nehemiah 6, just like we saw in chapters 2 and again in chapters 4 and again in chapter 5, this positive news of the wall being built um, is is clouded by, by repeated attempts to oppose that work. Now, we must remember the wall is completed despite the opposition. But the opposition is indeed there. And so as we begin chapter 6, we're again going to encounter these fellows that we've mentioned several times already, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, and others. These enemies of the Jewish people as they were trying to rebuild the wall. And so chapter 6, we see them seeking to pressurize Nehemiah in various ways that we'll read through. Um, But despite the intense pressure that Nehemiah and the rest of the builders encounter, they remain strong and this work is indeed completed. And as we've said throughout this whole series and throughout the five chapters that we've seen already, this story of Nehemiah tucked into the historical section of our Old Testament Bibles. This is not just a story of a successful building operation. This is not just a story of an impressive leadership campaign by Nehemiah. 
This is not just an historical document which highlights this very significant portion of, of Israel's history. No, this is a story of how God is rebuilding and restoring, but not just walls, he's rebuilding his people, his, in his place for his purpose. And as we celebrate verse 15, we are given no doubt as to who receives the praise for this work by continuing on into verse 16. And so in verse 15, we have the wall is completed. And then in verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Why? Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. This is a story of celebration and praise to Nehemiah's God. It was God who was the driving force behind this rebuilding project. It was God who deserves the praise. It was God for whom the enemies of this building project lost their confidence because they saw him at work. And so if they completed this wall in just 52 days, it is remarkable, but it is clearly well beyond just Nehemiah's good administrative and project management skills. This was supernatural help and work that was going on. And so for the enemies, it seems that the penny had finally dropped from when Nehemiah, back in chapter 2 at the end of verse 20, or at the end of chapter 2 in verse 20, he said, the God of heaven will give us success. And now they see this wall standing strong after 52 days, and they see the help of our God, and so they lose their confidence in trying to diminish these people. And so because of that reality, and because of the fact that these Jewish people are now in Jerusalem standing at these completed walls, what we see is their confidence in their God, as they recognize the help that they have received from God, they don't stand there as a celebration of their wonderful building work. No, they are bound to stand there in celebration of their confidence in their God. And that's what we're going to have a look at this morning. Because as the enemy's self-confidence had been shattered, we see that stand in stark contrast to the Jews' confidence in their God. And so today we're going to consider that idea of confidence. We've already thought about it as we've sung of the faithfulness of God, how he is our rock and our redeemer. <clears throat> and so we'll ask, well, well, what is our confidence in? Or, or possibly more rightly, who is our confidence in? Uh, and for those of us who are here this morning who have placed our confidence in Jesus Christ, hopefully this journey through chapter 6 will help us see how that confidence can grow and even be not just be sustained through trial, but grow through trial and pressure, just like it has done for Nehemiah and the Jewish builders. And so we're going to take time to read all of chapter 6 and all these 19 verses. And I'd encourage you to have a look at these three main areas within this chapter. Uh, we're going to think about the pressure that's on Nehemiah at various points. And we're going to see four examples of that, at least as we read through this chapter. We'll see. We'll think about what threat that caused for him. And then we'll also think about his response. And now those aren't my three points, but those things will help us as we read through this chapter with that, with that mindset. It will help us to see how these things build and mount and how the, the opposition to the Jews was growing and growing and growing, yet they are resolute in the confidence in their God. So let's read God's word together, Nehemiah chapter 6. When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to this time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now, Ono, uh, we'll just leave that there. Um, but they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messages, messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? 
Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid with me, aid to me, sorry, with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, speaking of Artaxerxes. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahathatabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember, Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to, to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehoahan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. And so you can see there is a lot in this chapter, but but I wonder if these three headlines and headings have, have helped us work through. So we see the pressure that's on in these four different occasions. The first one, in verses 1 to 4, is this this supposed meeting in Ono. And obviously, we'll come on to think about this in a second, but the threat there is not only distraction from the work, but it's actually a threat to Nehemiah's physical security, and we'll look into that in a second. Nehemiah's response, though, is, no, I'm focused on God's work that he has for me here. Then we see this open letter of accusation. Now, that just wasn't uh, someone not putting a stamp on a letter. That wasn't just forgetting to lick the envelope. That was a very intentional thing, meaning that actually that letter had been read on its way to Nehemiah. That message had now become public, that this reputation of Nehemiah is being tarnished, that the true intentions are actually being shown. But Nehemiah's response, no, just stick with what is true. He doesn't try to defend that letter. He just said, what you're saying is not true. You're making it up out of your own head. And rather, he responds with prayer in verse 9. Thirdly, we see then this compromise to sin by entering the temple, and we'll unfold that in a second. But again, it was about discrediting Nehemiah. It was about attacking his reputation among the people. And Nehemiah's response is simple and pure and undefiled obedience to God. And then we see the persistent intimidation, these letters from Tobiah, and even the relationships that Tobiah was trying to manipulate in and around Nehemiah. Again, it was about a loss of support, damaging Nehemiah's reputation. 
And we're not really told how Nehemiah responds. We just simply see Nehemiah getting on with the job at hand. And I realize that that's a very simplified version of events, and there's, there's much more nuance to explore. But, but God's, uh, Nehemiah's faithfulness to God, despite all that comes at him, is, a, is an encouraging example to us. Because although Nehemiah was indeed a, a very skillful and talented individual in his own right, it is so much more clear that his confidence was not in his own ability, but his confidence was squarely on his God, who his God is, what his God had called him to do, and the help that his God was giving. And so I'd like this to consider just four aspects of Nehemiah's confidence in God and to see how God may be showing us that, that he is the same God for us today and therefore we can live with the same confidence that Nehemiah had as we go about our daily lives seeking to follow him. So we'll see these four things. That Nehemiah was confident in God's task in verses 1 to 4. He's confident in God's strength in verse 9. Confident in God's ways, verses 10 to 14. And confident in God's help, verses 17 to 18. And all of that, where we're going to finish, is recognizing that all of that confidence is based on Nehemiah's close and deep and consistent relationship with his God. And so I'm going to briefly look at each one. uh, And and as we highlight uh, each of these incidents, we're going to fast forward and skip forward into Uh, other portions of scripture to see, well, how can God be seeking to continue to build our confidence in these things? So firstly then, let's have a think about uh, how Nehemiah was confident in God's task. And so this first piece of opposition that comes, this pressure that comes from Sambalat and Geshem inviting him to this meeting, and Nehemiah knows this meeting is suspicious. Did you see that? He said, I knew that they were scheming to harm me. And so Uno is about a day's travel away from Jerusalem. It's on the border between, uh, right on the outskirts of, of Judah's territory, but on the border with Samaria and Ashdod. And so that's a, that's a dangerous place for Nehemiah to go. Uh, but yet he is not going to go because he knows that this is a risky trip. And Nehemiah's response has got nothing to do, however, with his own safety. It's to do with his confidence in what God has called him to do. And we know from way back in chapter 2 that God called him to come and build this wall. But we see in verse 3 his response. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And four times they kept on saying the same thing. You see, Nehemiah is focused on the work that's being done and to ensure that that continues. And, and now we must realize that his words here, I don't think Nehemiah is suggesting that only he can complete this work. You know, if, if he left Jerusalem, then the whole thing is going to fall apart. No, God had called him to Jerusalem. God had not called him to go and meet these guys in Uno. And so he's saying, no, I'm here because God has me here. And so I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. And so Nehemiah is confident in the reality that God had given him that task. And that was therefore his priority. And so if we are to to look at our own lives in light of that reality, in light of Nehemiah's example, I think we can see a couple of places, particularly in the New Testament, where we see that God has given those of us who follow Jesus, he has given us a task. In fact, in, in Philippians 1, we're used that, Paul uses that word about being confident. We can be confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So we can be confident in the reality that God gives us a task. And what is part of that task? Well, Ephesians 2.10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a task for those who follow him. 
Coming to Jesus in faith is not about getting a golden ticket to heaven and waiting until you get there. No, God has got many things for us to do and we are to be confident in the reality that he has something for us to do. He is our purpose. Now I realize that some may know a very specific task. God has called me to this like Nehemiah had. But for all of us who seek to follow Jesus, the task that God has given us is to follow him and to follow him diligently and obediently, to get to know him, to invest time in our relationship with him, to share share his good news with others, and to live a life, as we'll come on to see in a few minutes, to live a life that is worthy of the manner of Christ. And, and so we're to not just hide our way through life until we get to glory. No, we are to be confident Not in our own task, but confident in the fact that God has called us to live for him here in this world. And as we'll see through the next few moments, that he gives us strength to do that. He has shown us his ways to live and he has given us his help. And so I suppose for all of us, and I include myself very much in this, how confident are we in the task that God has given us? not that I'm saying it's about us gaining self-confidence. No, no, no. It's about us being confident in what God has called us to. Called us to follow him faithfully. Called us to follow him sacrificially where it calls. And so in our in our office environment, in our home, in our places of education, and how we spend our social and leisure time, are we confident in God's tasks for us there? He has something for us there in those places. He has put us there. He has given us a social circle. He has placed us to live here at this time in all of eternity for a purpose. So let's not stumble our way through life waiting for eternity. No, our eternal life with Christ has begun. And so let's live that joyful, abundant life with him now, confident in his purpose for us. Second thing that we see is that Nehemiah is confident in God's strength. You see, faced by the threats that were coming through these letters and the repeated nature of those letters, Nehemiah knew that his, his enemy was trying to frighten them, trying to intimidate them. And the ESV actually states this in verse 9, that they, their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. That, that was the enemy's intention, that they'll be so preoccupied and so frightened and intimidated by the pressure that was coming that their hands will drop and it will not be done But Nehemiah's prayer in verse 9, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah knew he was aware of his own weaknesses and therefore possibly aware of his own liability to allow his strength to wane if he was to do it in his own. But no, he knew and was confident in the task that God had given him and he knew and was confident in the strength that God would provide. And the same is true for us. That following Jesus in a world that does not share, always does not share Jesus' values, then it will be a struggle. We've recognized this many times over the last few weeks and months, that we will battle against our old sinful selves. We will battle against distractions and temptations that come to seek to attack us and drag us away from the path that God has for us. But God doesn't leave us on our own. He, He provides the full armor of God. We saw that two weeks ago from Ephesians 6. And God provides strength, not only through that armor, he provides strength then by giving us his spirit, which indwells us, who indwells us, sorry. That same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. 
And also, he then provides a family of believers, of brothers and sisters, church, to, as we think of regularly from Hebrews 10, 24, consider how we may spur one another on. And so God provides strength for the task that he has called us to. He provides strength in his spirit at work in our hearts by one another and for the armor that we are to wear so that we may not fall away into the devil's schemes. And so let's rely on that strength. Let's be confident in that strength. That strength that he willingly and freely gives when we come in dependence before him. And so yes, living the way of Jesus may be difficult in our world. God knew that it would be so and therefore provides help and strength. Thirdly, we see Nehemiah being confident in God's ways. And so this is when we get into verse 10 to 14, when Shemaiah, he goes to meet Shemaiah, who's locked in in his home, and Shemaiah says, why don't we go and meet in the temple? And whether that was this time or another meeting, let's go to the temple and we'll close the doors because people are coming to kill you. And of course, that was all a bit of a scheme and Nehemiah could see through it, through the discernment that God gave. But, but Nehemiah knew that this wasn't right. And he knew that God's law prevented and prohibited just anyone from entering into the holy places of the temple. Nehemiah knew that those holy places were only reserved for the priesthood. That's what the Mosaic law had shown. So not only does Nehemiah know that law, but he knows why that law exists. He knows that to, to enter into the temple in that, in that unthinking way, would actually be dangerous for him because the temple marked the holiness of God. And he knew that for him to enter into that temple without the cleansing of the priests, then he would be in serious trouble as an unworthy, sinful human being coming into the presence of God. I think we see this clearer in the ESV, which, which translates verse, uh, let me see. That's if I'm on the right page, isn't it? Um, yeah, trans, uh, translates verse 11. So the NIV says, or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? But actually, I think a, a more right reading of that is how the ESV says, and what, and what man such as I should go into the temple and live? The idea is Nehemiah recognizes his sinful nature, and if he goes into the presence of the holy God, he's dust. You see, at the heart of this issue is actually the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. That the holy God cannot be in the presence of sinful man. And so in Nehemiah's day under the Old Testament law, God had made a way for the priesthood to be cleansed so they could enter on behalf of the people. But Nehemiah knew that he was not worthy of that. He was not worthy to be in the holiness of, in the holy presence of God in that way. And so he rejected Shemaiah's offer. And so... It, this issue helps us see Nehemiah's understanding of God's holiness, but it also helps us to see Nehemiah's understanding of God's ways. God had said that it was not right for anyone to enter the temple. It had to be the priests and it had to be in a certain way. And Nehemiah knew that and he was obeying what God had told him. See, this was a deep understanding and obedience to God's ways, even when it seemed to go against the grain, even when actually it might have made might have thought of a common sense approach to, okay, if people are coming to threaten me, let's go and hide in the temple. No, Nehemiah knew that that was not genuine and it would not be the way God would have him live. And we've seen this through several occasions as we've looked at First Peter. We've seen it through Nehemiah. We've seen it as we looked at the start of the year in Daniel. That, that obedience to God's ways, 
sometimes that leads us to do things or to, to live in ways that are not deemed to be culturally acceptable or certainly not the way that, that, that are popular in our world. But obedience to God's ways is exactly the path that we Christians should walk. See, under the covenant of grace that, we, that has been established under Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection in our place, then we might, not, we might not have the visible representation of the temple to help us see the holiness of God, but the holiness of God is not waned. The holiness of God is still dangerous for those who treat him lightly. And so if we're going to follow him, then we've got to follow all of him, all of what he says, all of his ways, even when that puts us at odds with our personal preferences or puts us at odds with the world around us. That's what obedience to Christ looked like. And that is the best way to live. We'll come on to see that in a second. I mentioned, I mentioned our look at Daniel at the start of the year. We looked at Daniel chapter 2. And when we looked at that, I, I referred to a book by Alistair Begg, which I found very helpful and still do. And I'd like to quote from it again. And it's within the context of, of Begg looking at Daniel chapter 3, where Daniel's three mates are facing the fiery furnace. And indeed, they go through the fiery furnace. But, but Begg tries to explain how that experience then relates to the modern-day believer. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth it. But it shows how obedience is what we are to do if we're to follow Jesus fully. This is Alistair Begg speaking. Facing the fire as we live obedient to God and refuse to worship what our society bows down to is not strange. It's the normal life of the believer. In Daniel's day, in Peter's and in ours, faith is still obedience despite the consequences. We are all called to obey even when it won't work out well for us. We are called to obey even when it seems better not to. Pragmatism is the enemy of obedience. When we base our decision-making on what looks more sensible or beneficial or understandable, then when it comes to it, we're going to worship our culture's idols instead of obeying God. When we base the Christian life on doing what is most suitable, amenable, or comfortable, we're extracting it, the Christian life, from what the Bible says discipleship actually looks like. The Christian life is sometimes going to look like resisting the attractiveness of an idol, refusing to meet the expectations of of everyone else and accepting the consequences of mockery, ostracization, unemployment and worse. We're not called to be pragmatic but faithful, to say, God has said this and so I will do it. What What will see us hold the line is a simple, straightforward, unerring obedience to the word of God, even if that means the fiery furnace. Now, I realize that for many of us, that feels very uncomfortable. Maybe striking, maybe even a bit too out there. That's that's for the really super religious folks to think that way. No, I don't see that in Scripture. When Jesus leaves his disciples in Matthew 28 and says, Go into all nations and teach them to obey everything I have commanded. But, but as I said, this might sound striking to us. The reality is, and it might even sound a bit, uh, a bit out of touch, like we can never attain to this level of obedience. How could we? But, but we can. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we should. See, o- obedience to God's ways is our, what our choice should be. Just like it was for Daniel and his friends, just like it was through Acts, as we see in the early church, just like Nehemiah here, because God's ways are eternally better 
Let me share just one verse from Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. God is good. God's ways are good. So his, his ways are best to follow, and we should be confident in doing so. See, we're, we're told, if not commanded, throughout the New Testament in a couple of places, Ephesians 5, for example, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And we must always remember the grace that we've received that leads us to repentance. I know I've said that many times before, but we cannot confuse. Let's obey so that we earn grace. You know, the biblical picture here, especially in Ephesians, you know how I love Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is, for by grace you have been saved through faith, therefore go and live the life that God has commanded you to live. And so follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ, Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or Ephesians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, that, that, that's really what our obedience is about. It's not about us checking a box to say, yes, I think I've done that. Yes, I've completed that. Yes, I'm making God happy by this. Yes, those, are, those might all be uh, subsequent conclusions of it. Our, our motivation for living an obedient life to God is because it is worthy of the gospel. Our life, how we live and our words, how we speak, they share to the world about the gospel that we proclaim. And so obedience to it will share that gospel much clearer to a world that lives around us as we're confident in his ways. The final thing that I'll mention is that we are confident and we can be confident in God's help. Once again, it might seem like being obedient to God's way seems like way too much of a stretch for us. It is. And so God provides his help to enable us. And I find this section at the end of, of chapter 6 interesting because we hear about this intimidation that's coming. Yet, as I mentioned at the start, we don't really hear how Nehemiah responds. We're simply told that the intimidation keeps coming. Tobiah has these cronies, it seems, in and around Nehemiah. I mean, who is Nehemiah to trust anymore? All these people seem to be under the influence of Tobiah, whether that's through marriage or through economics, that being under oath to Tobiah. But anyway, Tobiah is exerting his influence over all of these people to badmouth Nehemiah, to spy on him. And also he continues to send Nehemiah letters. But, but we don't really know how Nehemiah continues. We can see from the start of chapter 7, Nehemiah just continues to go around his every day, faithfully following what God has told him to do. And I think, and I realize I'm reading into the text, but I don't think I'm doing so unjustly. But I think Nehemiah is able to almost bat off all that stuff because he's confident in God's help. Tobiah might be trying to attack him, but Nehemiah isn't living for Tobiah's approval. All those other people might be talking about how Tobiah is so great. That doesn't matter to Nehemiah, whose heart is all for God. And so I think he can see that God is helping him. And he is confident in that help. So often throughout Nehemiah's story, we've seen him turn to God in prayer, haven't we? We saw it again here in verse 9, where he knew that the enemies were coming to try to sap their strength. And so his simple prayer is, strengthen my hands. And so Nehemiah is demonstrating throughout his whole life this dependence on God's help and a confidence that God will provide it. And for us, perhaps we, we consider that verse from Philippians 1.6 again. 
that we can know and we can be confident that he who began a work in us will bring it to completion. God's work in our lives is God's work in our lives. He will do it. Or John 14, where we read Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, Jesus knew that in leaving his disciples and leaving this earth, that his, his people, his followers would need help. And so he sent the Father, sent the Spirit, the helper, so that he would teach us all things and bring to remembrance the things that we learn about our God. And, and so those who follow Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living within us to empower us, to remind us, to teach us all that Jesus has said and done. And so the Holy Spirit guides our lives to live in his path. And in light of that then, knowing that it's not in our strength and it's not in our ways, it is by the Holy Spirit's help, we can be confident in God's help. Like Nehemiah, we can boldly and courageously continue in the tasks that God has called us to do because we don't do them in our strength, we do them in his. And so as we see this wonderful example from Nehemiah, we can see how he was confident in God's task, God's strength, God's ways, and God's help. And the same is true for us who follow Jesus today. We can know this confidence because our God hasn't changed. He has still work for us to do. He still equips us in his power for that work. His ways are still good and right and true. He still provides the helper, the Holy Spirit, to us. And so as I mentioned, one of the things that we want to finish with this morning is a, is a recognition and a, and a full recognition, as full as our minds can comprehend, of how Nehemiah is confident in all of these things because of his ever-growing and deepening relationship with God. See, it's clear that Nehemiah lived his whole life prioritizing his relationship with, with God. And therefore, he enjoyed that continual awareness of God's presence with him. Did you notice as we went through each of those attacks that were coming towards Nehemiah, he knew he could see, he could discern what was really the motives behind? Surely that was only because he was close with his father and could hear his father's voice way above all the other voices that were coming towards him. And so as we see Nehemiah's desire to grow in that, in that relationship with his father, may we be people who long for that too, who long to prioritize our heavenly eternal father, to talk to him, to listen to him, to go where he leads us, to resist where he tells us not to, to invest time and quality time in our relationship with him. See, and as we do, we, may we grow in our confidence of our God in the tasks that he's given us to and the strength that he provides in the ways he would have us walk and in the help that he offers for that journey. See, our God is a great God and he has made all of this possible, not just having the confidence to live the life that he has called us to, but he has made that life possible because of the sacrifice of his son. He's, Jesus has opened the way for us to know our Father God and, and this is what we're going to turn our attention to as we gather around the table. And, and as we do, we see Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and I pray that we would be confident in that sacrifice. Confident that Jesus has done all that is needed for us to know our Heavenly Father and to walk in daily relationship with Him. I'd love us to read 
as we turn our attention towards communion, I'd love us to read Hebrews 10 and then we'll sing together. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. In understanding the confidence with which we come into a relationship with our Father and then stay in that relationship with our Father, hear the writer to the Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful. You see what our confidence is based on? Our confidence is only in the blood of Christ. It is only in his blood by which we can enter the most holy place. That new and living way which has been opened by his body, broken on the tree for us, taking the full weight of the wrath of God's, of God's wrath upon our sin, as he took our sin upon himself, dying in our place, paying that penalty so that we don't have to. When we can turn to him in repentance and faith and say, Jesus, I have confidence in your sacrifice in my place. I have confidence that you can forgive my sins, that you can be my Lord of my life and my Savior for eternity. And so we can know him, and he is the only source of our confidence. And so we can come into that holy place, the very presence of God for now, as we live in his presence by his Spirit and for all eternity to come. And so we can draw near to God with a sincere heart. And therefore we can live with the full assurance that faith brings that our relationship with our Father is not based on what I can do. It is based on what Christ has done. And as he declared, it is finished. And so we can have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And therefore, let us hold unswervingly to the hope. Let's live confidently in that hope. For he who promised is faithful. So this is... The basis of our hope, the basis of our faith, the basis of our confidence. This is what we're celebrating as we gather around this communion table. When we will take bread, we will take a cup. And that bread that speaks to us of Christ's body, which was broken on our behalf for us. His blood, which was poured out for us to bring us into that new covenant of grace. Also that he would receive the glory as many souls are swept into his kingdom. And so I pray that for those of us who know him and trust him, may our confidence grow in him and what he has done and what he's calling us to. And for those who maybe don't know him yet, may you see him as the only source of our confidence, the source of joy and life and hope and peace with our Father. But let's turn to prayer and then we'll sing and then we'll share in this wonderful meal together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can have confidence in you Confidence, Father, because we know that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe and the sustainer of it too. We can have confidence, Father, because you are not aloof, you are not distant, you have made yourself known to us through the person of your Son. You continue to reveal your truth to us through your word and by your Spirit at work in our hearts. And so we praise you, Father. We want to say with Nehemiah, who am I? that we should receive such goodness and grace. Yet, God, you pour it out. You lavish your grace upon us. And so we praise you and we thank you.
And we pray, Father, that, that as those, for those of us who, who do know you, who have committed our lives to you, Father, would you help our confidence in you to grow? Thank you that you are eternal and have not changed. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the power and strength that you gave to your people as they rebuilt those walls in 52 days, as they withstood the temptation and the pressure that was coming at them, thank you that you are still the same God. You still want to offer your grace and your power and your strength to those of us who will come and ask you for it. And so would you help us to live in your confidence, confidence in you, confidence in the tasks that you've called us to, confidence in the ways that you've called us to walk, confidence, Father, in the strength that you provide, confidence in the help that you offer. And Father, as we grow in that, we recognize that there's no quick fix to getting there. We want to and we long to prioritize our relationship with you. Help us, Father, to choose how we spend our time and our energy wisely, investing in our walks with you, coming to know you more, seeing your glory more clearly, and living our lives more faithfully following you. Jesus, all of this is only possible because of your sacrifice, because you have opened up the way. And so we thank you and we praise you. And we pray that as we seek to live lives that glorify you, you would indeed be exalted. Your kingdom would be extended in our midst. We thank you and we offer you ourselves for your glory and for your way. Amen.